Welcome, everyone, to Alligator Preserves. I am your host, Laurel McCargan. I've already been laughing because I did a little five-minute visit with our guest today, and you will thoroughly enjoy my visit, our visit today, with award-winning author, Johnny Worthen. (laughs) Welcome to Alligator Preserves a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic, because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Johnny! Well, I'm, you know... Just so glad it's already, once again, Groundhog Day, you know? It is Groundhog it is Groundhog Day. It's Groundhog Day. I got you, <laughs> Wait, it's Groundhog Day. I got Wait, it's Groundhog Day. All right, I've done this. I sat that up all night and it didn't even come off half as well as I would have liked it. Okay, well, thanks for having me. <laughs> you, babe. <laughs> that is really a, oh man, that song, that, that forever entrenched with that classic existentialist comedy but bill murray lost a friend over that movie because he was a dick but you 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 didn't tell me we were going to be singing a duet to start this off i haven't done that before (laughs) i love won't pay the rent our writing barely does well well let me tell you something you are known i'm going to have people i'm going to have you tell people what they want what you want them to know about you. But what I know about you is that you're you're a tie-dye king. And so believe it or not, people who know me will be shocked to know that I own no tie-dye. I think I have in the past. Somehow I, I don't know. But I went out searching for tie-dye the other day, specifically for this episode, because I was going to wear it too. And then I thought, no, this is about you. This is not about me. So I went with all neutrals today because you're you're the tie-dye. King. I I don't mean to. It's just I'm a, I'm an ultimate. I'm a very lazy man. Uh, I they say given the opportunity, you will dress the way you did when you were most comfortable in your life, when you were happiest. Apparently, I really had a good time in college, falling in the Grateful Dead for a summer. So, welcome to the tie dye, and uh, it, it was cemented finally at my, at my first book signing when I went in tie dye because I just love tie dye and. The rule is you don't wear tie-dye for yourself. You wear it for other people because I don't know I'm wearing it. Um, I mean, I, I learned I learned this at the Grateful Dead show when people would come up to me and stare at my shirt. And I was wondering why. Am I that buff? No, it's because I'm wearing tie-dye and they're tripping. But uh, you wear it for your friends. So I don't know I'm wearing it. And it has to be a work of art. But anyway, so I'm wearing it to my first book signing. And my my publisher said, you know, it's not very, um, it's not very professional. I was going, no, this is my style. This is going to be my brand. Oh, brilliant. I hadn't thought about it before that moment. Ever since then, I have had no problem stressing in the morning. None at all. And it's, it hides stains. There's a whole curry on this. You can't tell. You could stand up and turn around and no. show and show people. I, I, no? I just, I'll just show this. This is a great geode. The idea is that um, it's also a work of art. You know, to um, I the only mass-produced tie-dye I own generally say Grateful Dead on it. I bought it at a show. So they're old. Um but otherwise, um, I shop Etsy and farmers markets, and I find um, other artists p- performing, you know, doing art because this is a thing. I don't know how you do this. I can, I couldn't do this. But well, it's, I, yeah, it's, it cheers I, me up, you know. I, I saw all the different things that I could purchase to make my own tie dye t shirt when I didn't find one, and I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just not doing it. I'll, I'll eventually find one, or maybe you'll send me one of your old ones that you know, I, brown or something. <laughs> they're all a little large, but I'll send you something. But yeah, okay, it's um, yeah, it's, it's just comfortable. It's it, and it and it has really paid off for me. Uh, people know me as the title. They haven't read my work, but they know I'm tired. I also use it as a as a symbol because, hey, writing symbols, words, deconstruction, two degrees in English, put it to work. Um, I use it as a symbol of my multiple genres. Because uh-huh. I'm that idiot who writes. I, last time I counted, I had six distinct genres I've been published in, and my publishers are exactly thrilled with this. But I don't know. I'm, that's what I, what I what I ended up doing. I I absolutely love it, and I applaud your multi-genreism. 
if that's a word. If it's not, I just I just coined it multi-genreism because I too my goal is to write in every genre before I, you know, am composted next to my dog. <laughs> oh, okay. You can, you can do that now, I think. I think in Colorado you can you can compost your bodies now. It's a thing. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't I don't know if you knew that. So there you well, go. I, 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 I saw that you just legalized psilocybin mushrooms this week, like yesterday. Yeah, why not? So we should how are you, 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 I, I, I am fine. By <laughs> we, 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 we. So, so your, your tie dyeism is your, that's, that's your uniform. And I understand uniforms. I'm a former army officer and the idea of not having to think about what you're going to wear every day because you, you have to wear a certain thing is so liberating. It's wonderful. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, military ought to go tie dye. Oh, that'd be fun. <laughs> well, they kind of do. Wouldn't yeah. that? The camo, <laughs> yeah, the camo. Is where it came from, you know. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't that freak out? Uh, whoever, whomever. <laughs> We're getting overrun by hippies, man. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't that solve all our world problems? Oh, oh man, couldn't hurt. Couldn't hurt. Well, no, I didn't. I didn't think we were going to go in, in this direction, but uh, you're coming from us. From Sandy, Utah. Yes. Sandy, Utah, a suburb of Salt Lake, somewhere in the valley. Everything's in this valley. I mean, it's like 99% of the population of Utah is in this strip. And I'm in that strip. You know, the other 1% are lost trying to get home. But it's not so sandy right now. Did you say it's snowy? Oh, Lord, we're having a winter. We are having a winter. We haven't had winters and we're having one now. And you're having our winter. We're supposed to have winter and I've got no snow out there. It's ridiculous. Every time I think Colorado is a mountain state, and then I go to Denver, and I go, "You're on the plains, dude." Really, this <laughs> the is mountains. Fun. I'm in the mountains. I'm three You're hours, there. three hours south of Denver, which is lovely. We've got mountains all around us, which is awesome. So back okay. to you, back to you. When did you know you were a storyteller? Well, I've always been writing stories. I've always been writing ever since I kind of. I can't remember. The, I wrote my. <laughs> I get asked this once in a while, but I do remember I wrote a short story in sixth grade, and the handwriting was so bad that the teacher wanted to share it with the class. Very encouraging teacher, Mrs. Avery. I remember her name. That tells you the impact. And uh, she finally just handed me the things that you read it to the class. So I read it to the class. It was fan fiction for Kolshak the Night Stalker, which which dates me. If you don't know who Kolshak the Night Stalker is. Think of it as the X Files version one, or is what is what's happening now? I don't know. If there's anything like that now. Anyway, and then I went into went into college and everything. And I always I was always writing something. I fell into role playing games. Uh, I was that guy that uh, had to fight for Dungeons and Dragons to be an acceptable club in school. Had to go up before the principal and the, the regents and make my case that we weren't all going to sacrifice each other and eat babies. You know, you know, we just you know, nibble nibble a little bit around the toes and then college and uh i didn't know what i wanted to do when i grew up and i realized at one point that uh every class i enjoyed in college i took everything i had to we had back in the day we had generals i suppose you still do but you have to have like this much in generals and then you can specialize something else and i'd done every general there was every single direction i could have gone anywhere and they came back to me and said pick a major or leave and um i went well the only classes the classes i enjoy the most were the ones that I wrote for. So I went, I wish I shall be English. And I tried the creative writing path and I didn't like it because it was very, very clicky and it was very, very right and wrong. And I was coming from a genre, a genre background and comedy and everything. And I, I took a couple, but then I got a, I got a bachelor's in uh, critical theory and uh, literary theory. So I became a deconstructionist, a feminist, uh, one of those, uh, early woke in the nineties. Um, then I went on to get a master's degree with, which is more of the same, but in, um, but I used film emphasis, still English, but I started reading films from deconstructing it because that's where I thought the, the cultural narrative was being told. Anyway, flash forward to career days and all every career, every job I ever had, I found some excuse to write for, you know, I was an actuary. So I put together that I started the newsletter for the company. You know, ads, whatever. So I have, then I started checking out, then my resume now reads, and I have like a lot of, I've had a lot of jobs. I mean, coming from my background with two English degrees and a, and a minor in classics, that's right. I speak Latin. 
Now there are some job qualifications for you right there. <laughs> so, uh, including my, I, I had a good long stint in fast food, uh, where I, we actually, all? I, think well, I owned a restaurant. I opened a restaurant in Eugene, Oregon, and that's where the tie dye kind of got started. You opened a restaurant in Oregon? Yeah. What kind of restaurant? It was a bagel shop. I figured uh, I was trying to find something that the internet could. I was in between jobs again. I always jumped one job to another when a door opened. This one slammed with I didn't have anything for it, so I had to reinvent myself. So we, uh, with a huge mortgage and scare and fear all over us, we uh, start. We kind of figured out how to start a bagel store. And we started a store called The Daily Bagel in Eugene, Oregon. That is there to this day. And uh, it was nice because, you know, it closes early. I, you know, get it over with. It was something that the internet couldn't overcome. I mean, you couldn't, you could buy bagels on the internet, but they're better if you get them. The then, yeah, yeah. And then uh, when the rains of Oregon washed my soul away, I returned to the desert mud from which I was spawned back to Salt Lake. Don't ask me why I live here. There are days I just scratch my head. Were you born there? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it called it called you back. Did you make your own bagels? I did. I did. We uh, we had a we had a bakery. We had a, we had a big freezer. We'd make the we had a big huge mixing machine that would hold six or seven homeless at a time, and uh, we wound them up and we ground. It was anyway delicious bagels. We did very well. We had uh, I don't know um, sort sort of breakfast and lunch and closed at four three or four in the afternoon. So I was always home. It was a good time, but it was stressful because restaurants are tricky. And it was right when the Atkins craze came, and that, oh. that hurt. Oh. Uh, so I'm dealing with that for a while. Try, try to open up, try to have a bakery serving Atkins. Here you go. Here's your <laughs> lettuce and your meat charging you for the bagel. <laughs> anyway, I went back to Utah, and I got involved in, the, uh, in real estate and land right before the bubble, during the bubble, after the bubble. And then, God help me, I, um, after, I, I bought a business, and I was – this is the last job I I haven't had a boss since the '90s, so I'm basically what you call unemployable. Uh, so, <laughs> because you got nobody to call, you're going to call. They're all dead. Or they're, you know. But anyway, so uh, I I had a business in the drug war, where I tested. I had a, a a drug testing company, and it was it was so so uplifting because uh, people would come in, they'd pee in a cup, and I'd take their children away. Oh. Yeah, that got old, and when that was done. I said, you know what? All I ever want to do is write. I've been writing my entire life. My bucket list has one thing on top of it. And I, you know, top three always is becoming an, an author, right? Write a book. So I said, hey, we're doing it. I got a little war chest. We're going to make it run. And um, I did. And that was uh, 11 years ago. So now I am 11 years into my 10-year plan to be an overnight success. I'm around the same point. My first book I published in 2013. So Me too. Yeah. How about that? Well, You're I want to let, let everyone know that I met you, Johnny Worthen, at the Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers Conference in Denver back in September. And I attended your The Muddled Middle workshop, which was wonderful. But we're going to, I'm going to ask you a few questions now about the book that I read of Kings, Queens, and Colonies. This is mm-hmm. one of many of your books. And so what I like to do with my author interviews is I like to ask my authors to give our listeners a little elevator pitch. Now, I don't know how many floors you're going to need to do an elevator pitch for this, because this is a dense, and I I mean, this is Um, a dense book. This is, you got a lot going on here. So I'm going to give you four floors, four floors. You better give me, you bet, you know, and you bet you better have a screaming baby somewhere on there as well, just just to be safe. Okay, well, um, the best I can do. Oh, I've never done any better than the back of the book, so I'm going to kind of cheat from that. Um, okay, go. Humanity gets another chance, but will anything be different? Tagline. Okay, nearly a millennium after the unsettling of old Earth. Oh, actually, uh, I know what I want to do. Okay, I know, I know, I I, I can do this. I, I'm going to do the shared screen because I love this picture. Oh, he's going to show us a picture. So for those of, so for those of you just listening, you're going to have to go to the YouTube video of this so you can see the coronum system that Johnny is showing us right now. Yeah, so what happened here is nearly a millennium after the unsettling of old Earth, which was the moment when, believe it or not, at the time this was fiction, I envisioned a moment when rich people would build spaceships to leave the planet. 
leaving us poor sops behind. Anyway, that was the unsettling of old Earth. But now the new civilized worlds are on the brink of war. The planet in Skari, that's the red one there, as an affront to tradition and the prophet on temple, that's a planet lower right, has placed Zabel, a woman, am I right, upon its throne. With the backing of the church, Brandon of Hyrax readies an armada to subdue Inskari and unite the system under a single rule, his own. Meanwhile, an Inskarn group of separatists depart for the last unclaimed world of the system, Tirgwenin, at 12 o'clock. There they will find something strange, something low and connective, subtle and spreading, something alien, something truly threatening. Dun, dun, dun! So in, in what is probably one of the top five things that have happened to me in my career, uh, Book List compared this to Dune. Ooh. And I think, and there is a lot of, it was my model. I, you know, the thing is, is you will write who you were reading, right? My main influences were, were Herbert and Asimov and Elmore Leonard, these older authors, which is tricky when you're trying to query because they only know authors which wrote in the books that were published in the last 35 minutes. So, um, for me, that's it. So I was very happy with that. But there are actually many simultaneous plots happening within the story, all weaving around the idea of this very nasty sun. What's happened is they find this system, Coronum. The sun is called Coronum. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so named, it means that's Latin for crown. Okay. And all the planets are in, they have, there are slots for 12 planets in the Goldilocks zone, which means they can support life. You know, it's, it's, somebody said, that's very unusual. That's very unlikely. That's too far. There is a reason for this. You don't learn it in the first book, but there's a reason for this. Anyway, so they fly to these things, and the sun is just a nasty beast. It's already, it's destroyed three of its planets already, just with these sudden eruptions and gravitational fields. So when the, when the ships arrive, they're immediately basically EMP'd. And it's all they can do to crash on any res- uh, crash on the respective planets. Electromagnetic keeps- pulse, by the way. Yeah, and electromagnetic which knocks out every yeah. every electronic thing. So they're flying by the seat of their pants. They're lucky to live. These huge arc ships crash. But what it does is, since all the ships came from Earth at the same time, and they're all the same stuck-up oligarchy class that left Earth. Not exactly the cream of the crop, in my opinion, but that's who they came. But so they all kind of came from the same mold. But landing on their individual planets, they're separated by virtue of technology for about a thousand years. And now about a thousand years or so after this moment, the planets are now communicating again. They have ships that can actually sail these storms. Um, no electronics. So there's a lot of steampunk vibe to it. You know, they use sails and plasma. And solar sails. Solar sails. Which is nasty. And there's hurricanes and things. And what, but they've evolved differently enough that one of the planets in Skari has decided, because it was a very patriarchal society when they arrived, uh, a woman's on the throne, which is should be a big deal, provided she marries who she's supposed to. Well, she doesn't. She They're going to fight for their independence. They're the weakest. Hyrax is already everywhere. They're going to put up a fight. And the separatists, um, that's the other thing, is in Skari has separatists. You don't leave the religion. The religion is called the saved. A pun upon, of course, the, there's... Just your salvation, but also the fact that you were saved from old earth. My church is, is a, is a loose interpretation of, um, Catholicism with the church in Rome and what I know very well around here, Mormonism. And mm-hmm. so we have a prophet instead of a pope. Right. We have advisors and we still have apostles. Yeah. Um, and they're a very strong force and they have their own planet. And, uh, the planets are actually protected by a crystalline atmosphere, which has evolved to help save the planets from the sun's terrible rays. But of course, doing because we're making the same mistakes again, pollution from beneath is eroding that, threatening to destroy this, the planets all over again at a much quicker time frame. Anyway, so separatists on Inskari because they've allowed separatists. They're, they actually have their own church now, the Church of Inskari. If you see parallels here. I, right. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You've got the pox. You've got... Religious indoctrination in the schools. Yeah. Uh, you've got uh, control your daughter. Control your daughter, please. <laughs> yeah, but it, op- it opens up with each chapter each has a, um, each section will have an epigram because there's so much backstory involved. 
Um, you can get a lot of clues from what's happening. But anyway, the, the book actually begins with history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. The quote from um, Mark Twain. And inspirationally, I took the book. Obviously, there was something inside me that very much needed to be said. So they have so many genres. The reason for that is not because I, I'm, I'm a flighty, though I probably am. It's because I learned to write from theme. That's I always start with an idea, and then I follow the story to where it goes. Sometimes it turns into horror. Often it turns into horror. Sometimes it turns into a young adult. Sometimes it's a comedy. This particular one turned into a science fiction because I'm a lazy man. And I'm, I, I noted, and I wasn't willing to do the research to put it in the time where it's kind of reflecting, and I hated the way things worked out anyway, so you have to change it. Okay. The moment is, of course, the late 16th century in Europe. If this is uh, So we have the, the Queen Isabel is an echo of Queen Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, Prince Hyrax, uh, Prince, sorry, Prince Brandon on Hyrax is Prince Philip of Spain. The prophet is the Pope. And Sir Gwenin is the New World. But things are different. I get to twist them up. And uh, so there are these echoes happening. And I'm trying to show this because I, in my studies, I keep coming back to this moment in Western history as kind of a pivotal moment. This was the birth of the, of, of the rise of the middle class on the one hand, the end of the commons on the other, and the beginning, the wholesale loosening of exploitive colonization. South America, Africa, we're grabbing, we're going for empire, and it's, it's nasty. We've kind of never really gotten out of that groove. We've never quite gotten into the all for one and one for all again. It's always them and us and ex- exploitation. So I think that's kind of led to everything. So that's what that moment's being echoed here. Long story, but that's kind of where it is. And it's a long story. And all, and the story is being told through, I think in the first book, I have about 35 named important characters and you can keep track of them. Trust me, you can. <laughs> There are a lot of characters in this. As, as I said, it's it's very dense, and you have so many things going on. I, I would disagree with you that you're a lazy man because you can't write a book like this and and be a lazy man with oh, everything you. that you have going on and everything that you're keeping track of, and uh, your your craft too. I I just have to say I, I I love a good a good simile. So let me just read a couple that just made me go, Oh, and there are so many, I mean, there were way, way too many for me. I'm going to oh, just wow. do a few. All right. Thunderclaps from distant lightning heralded the day while waves of radiation seen and unseen churned up storms of clouds, iconic, electric, and dry to harass the wet ones of sleet and much needed rain as Karanam, their son would have it. Uh, but before that, you have waves of blue and red auroras skittered outward across the sky like fleeing phantasms chasing the darkness. Ooh, I love that. Here's one when we're talking about the solar cells, right? Yeah. When turned up, the silks would ripple and sway in the plasma, stretched to the length of the mast several kilometers or more, like flower petals arrayed around a central stalk. I mean, just beautiful. And then you have an, another chasing one here that I absolutely loved. Distant lightning. Again, you got ooh, you got some great things going on here. Distant lightning strikes flicked and flashed. Auras skittered like children chasing chickens. I love that because you both have, you know, the, both the simile and the the alliteration there going. Just I mean, your your writing is not the writing of a lazy man. So I'm I'm just going to say that. that. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, one of the things that I run into is when I, you get you get your, the bit in your teeth. And I love this story. I wrote all the books. I wrote 450,000 words of Kornam as a method of me dealing with society and envisioning hope and having a good fight. You know, just, I love this book. Every, I think every author of my generation, probably every generation dreams of writing that, that trilogy. Right. But when I published, when I got this book picked up, um, this is, I was a small press, I thought called flame tree press. And I hooked up with an editor at a conference, go to conferences, writers. Um, and uh, I didn't think much of it. A nice small press, probably the biggest I've had so far. And didn't think anything of it. And then uh, some of the edits came back, and there were, there were two main edits. Uh, otherwise, the edits were great. The first edit was I used a lot of these and vows, and I, do, and I didn't do them well. 
But I did that on purpose because I'm, I'm imagining that they're trying to re- relive those high times of that, and they didn't know what they were doing very well. I said, well, it's kind of sloppy. It doesn't really add anything. Can we take them out? I said, you're my editor. You're giving me a chance. Yes, if you believe so. And the second one was a little stranger to me. And uh, this was this was from my I had a, my editor uh, Philomena uh, came back and said, "Okay, so I'm paraphrasing some of this story, but it's kind of um, okay. So your your titles aren't being used right. You know, I have lords and ladies, kings, queens, dukes, earls, all that. You know, so there's a major character called uh, Sir Nolan Brett. Okay, Sir Brett, please come here. We have some tea and crumbles, right? So you know, but to me it was it it sounded right. She said, "No, no, no, that's not how it's done." It's, it would be a uh, first name, Sir Nolan, not Sir Brett. It would be Sir Nolan, not Sir Brett, because the first name. Because once you're a sir, it's a small, happy family. And I said, well, you know, who's going to know? Who's going to care? Who's going to know? Some and the them. answer came back to me. Everyone on this island. <laughs> that's when I looked closer and saw that Flame Tree was based in London. <laughs> and New York was a, was a subsidiary. So, oh my goodness, wow, this is amazing. So, yes, please help me, save me from being an idiot. So, um, the 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 American ear uh, well, had had betrayed me, and that's that that would have been some laziness. I just checked. You don't even know to look for that kind of thing. And but for me, um, intellectually, it became a stretch because now suddenly all these characters that I knew under certain names, Sir Bretts is one of the one that really sticks to me. Now became Sir Nolan, and I and I had to, I had to like wind my gears back to get that in my mind. But by the time um, the editing of the third book was done, I was I was there. But that's just it, you know. You don't know what it is on the research. Even science fiction needs research, you know, because you have to you have to have the connections in the past for people to understand. Right. And so you're not lazy. So stop telling people you're lazy. Even, oh, okay. Okay. Even, even though you I'm are. I'm a very even. ambitious dude. <laughs> but this is of kings and queens in colonies. So talk a little bit about the bees. And ah, okay. Well, all right. So one of the things that struck me, uh, they're, they're, this is a double thing. Um, I read an outstanding book called Roanoke uh, by Lee Miller. Uh, who I sent a copy of this book to, and I hope you're still alive and got it. But it's a it's an outstanding book. It, uh, for those of you who don't know, there, there were the the first English colony on the New World was at Roanoke. They called it Roanoke, Virginia. I think it's a Carolina now, but at the time it was Virginia. Everything was Virginia. Uh, Virgin Queen, get it? Um, anyway, so and it failed. It was mysteriously lost. Ooh. And then later uh, we had they tried again at Chesapeake Bay. And nothing but good things happened out of that. There was no starvation, nothing like that. They weren't eating their shoes. Anyway, so anyway, what happened? What happened to Roanoke was not so much as they got lost; it was that they were absolutely betrayed, according to Lee Miller's reading of, of history. Is that it was a political thing? Is that the whoever put their a colony on the New World first kind of got kind of owned it? So the question was a man named Sir Walter Raleigh. Had uh, sent Roanoke, had said sent the first colony, and uh, for some unknown reason, their colony was placed on the only piece of land in all of North America where the English were hated, absolutely despised. Oops, oops, and then they were left there. Oops, and then. They mysteriously disappeared when they didn't. When when somehow their re, their uh, um, their resupply didn't show up, and then uh, the story, happens. yeah, and that happened. And so and so that that was the idea. I hated the ending there when I realized they were absolutely betrayed and they were trying to do this. Also, they were kind of creepy because the original colonists weren't fleeing to have religious freedom. They were fleeing so they could oppress other religions. They just didn't have enough power. Anyway, long story. So, uh, but also the the story goes that uh, once. Uh, the colony at Chesapeake, at Jamestown, when it finally was landed, they saw the Roanoke people, waved at them across the river. They were still around. They'd, they'd been assimilated into the Indian cultures, that uh, they were still alive. But had they been alive, Jamestown would have not been allowed. So their, their letters home were actually um, censored. Um, anyway, so then the bees came. So I didn't like that. So I needed something. So along with it, I wanted to retell Roanoke with a better idea, to basically retell the story of the abandonment of the betrayal. And and I wanted, I didn't like the ending, let's face it. So then I had the idea of what, what the grand idea of society is in a shitty direction. How do we fix it? What could do this? And I started lighting upon 
a lot of philosophical ideas. And the two that came to me were empathy and uh, the Akashic library. Now, all right, beads. All right, work with me here. So <clears throat> empathy is a feeling of like it, helping other people. And that became, that became the, uh, the calling sign uh, or the tagline of, of a movement called How Big Is Your Family? The idea being, I will, I will help myself to this food because I love me. I will help my family because they're important to me. I will help maybe my cousin, my mother. What about my neighbor? How big is my family? As soon as you realize your family is big, then empathy can stretch and you can actually help each other. That was one of them. Um, but the Akashic Library is the idea from the Jewish Kabbalah, so I'm going all over the place, that somewhere in the universe, on another dimension, there's a library of all events that have ever happened and all that will ever happen. And you can go visit there and you can read these things. It's kind of a throwback to uh, Childhood's End, if you know, know that book, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, great book. Anyway, the idea that you can see these things. And then I had the idea of using empathy to access that. So the bees, the bees, the bees, mm -hmm. the bees are a strange native insect, not very strong, stingless. All the planets, most of the planets have them. But have, once you have been initiated and up, basically you have to be a, you have to have empathy and then the bees will come to you and the bees can, and depending on your level of, of, of work and knowledge and wisdom, you can get a lot of power from this. One thing, for example, instant communication between any two people with a bee. Sometimes communication from one person with a bee, somebody without a bee. Sometimes you don't need the bee, but you can go see things you have no business seeing. You can understand things. Sometimes you can even see the future. And in a way, it, this became to me, oh, I'm going to spoiler, kind of the internet. All the information is at your fingertips. Are you using it? This how are you internet. using it? How, how are you using mm. it, right? So, um, but in order to get the bees, the, the, you have to have suffered. And this is kind of the Buddhist thing is suffering. Only through suffering do we really understand empathy. So, and, and there's a pattern that shows through the entire series of those when they are ready to get a bee are generally not really at the height of their fame or anything. They're going through hard times and things pick up. And then we, and the bees, are almost too perfect, too miraculous. The only thing that could compare with these miraculous bees would be the existence of a solar system with 12 habitable planets within reach of humanity. What's up with that? What's up with that? I know. So it's that, that, it, it, that yeah. whole concept fascinated me. And of course, bee, bee colonies, you know, you got, you got a little play on yeah, that yeah. as well. I mean, you, you, you deal with caste system a lot. And I was, I, I was wondering if your 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 natives, the Gwydians, it it brought back Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness to me. Yeah, the yeah. idea of the natives, and but the native, the natives are also that was tricky. That was tricky. So I love the plant. The, the plant you can dig into. Those of you who know, I think my my fans in England will see Chair Gwen and they say that's pretty bold because it is Welsh for the place of bees. I know English, American author, American readers. That's so cool. How did he get that name? But yeah, the heart of dark. That's an interesting aspect. So as the, as the books evolve, particularly in um, in the second book, which just came out, of Civilized, Saved, and Savage Savages, we can see that there's even a caste system upon Tirgwenin, um, defined by those who have bees and those who do not have bees, mm. or those who the bees will come to and those who the bees just don't like. And if you don't, and if you're not liked by these bees. You're gonna ha you're, you're gonna have a rough time. You're gonna have a rough, time. but it's for your own good. That's the weird thing. I it, it was a that was a that was a tightrope walk. I, I hope you know. I hope Papa got away with that one. But it's um and you know it, the idea is that Tirgwenin or Jareth's world because we find out that Tirgwenin it was not colonized during the unsettling, so they thought it was unclaimed. But it was actually the first world settled, and you and you get this early on in, in some of the epigrams is that there was a man named Jareth. Who left Earth of 200 years before the unsettling, and we we, we learn more about him throughout the books. And he had the same experience. He crashed onto Gwenin on the, on that planet. But they he brought different things with him on his on his voyage than he did than the other people did. There, there's a line in there that uh, a, a, le a letter he wrote to his supporters back in the year uh, 2506, old, old Earth or something. Where he says. Uh, I'm sorry, Robert, you're not allowed to bring your nukes on board. <laughs> you, won't need, you know, don't do that. You know, uh, if, you, if this is not good for you, you don't get a company. 
We're, we're, we're good without your money. Bye. And that's the idea is that can you build a better society? How would you build a better society? And their society looks primitive. And so in, in addition to all that you've already talked about, I mean, I, I would, you would characterize this as high fiction, yes? I, I call mean, it high, high sci-fi. Hi-fi. Well, yeah, it's not. It's I call it social epic, epic social science fiction. Epic social science fiction. Yeah, because it's 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 more fiction than science. I mean, right. Right. And you you also deal with the space elevator concept, which has always fascinated me. And 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 I went to the wiki, and the wiki said that the space elevator, the con, the key concept of the space elevator appeared in eighteen ninety five. When Russian scientist Konstantin Tsiolkovsky was inspired by the Eiffel Tower in Paris, and so uh, that fascinated me because I was just thinking of John Scalzi's book *Old Man's War*, and yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if there are any other books that influenced you to use the the space elevator idea. There might have been. I know I needed to. I had to get away from um, chemical combustion. Uh, because gunpowder is a no-no and uh, all that kind of thing. So that's what they knew, nukes, nukes and things. They have a, a pseudo-nuke that happens now, which is basically the plasma that the sun throws out. You can accumulate it to power ships, or you could do the most unthinkable thing in the world, bring it beneath a planetary shield and detonate it. Not that that would happen. So I, I noticed it. I mean, you notice this after you write this. Um, I was watching Apple's Foundation. Asimov's Foundation trilogy, and they had a space elevator there. And I, I, I loved the Foundation growing up. I don't remember the space elevator myself, having read it so many years ago, but it might have been there as well. And the idea is pretty, pretty basic. Um, it's just uh, it's set a string and centripetal force, centrifugal, centrifugal force will hold it taut, and you can actually go up and down and up and down. I saw it somewhere else that I see it in a recent show as well. So it is a, it is a thing. It is a thing, it, yeah. and it's and it's a fascinating thing, and I. I think it hasn't actually been put into practice yet because maybe we don't have a material that's strong enough to hold. Yeah, I think that that's a lot of it. And it's, it, the thing is, we don't need it yet because it's we're still okay burning up our atmosphere. Yeah, <laughs> we got a few years before we're going to worry about that. You know, but it's it's a great and, and allow it also allowed me to have port cities and it allowed me to have distances and to have the feel of just being able to land anywhere you can't anymore some ships can but in order to do that they basically have to become a temporary space uh, space elevator themselves uh which allows for landing craft and uh, all the all the nestiness that happens there mm-hmm. i forgot to ask you if you wanted to read a section of this i mean i just oh, well, no, I think you, a, you read all the good you read all, everything that's good in it so i'll just um <laughs> so many again i i really like um I, I don't know. I never thought I was writing steampunk, but in reading this later, it definitely has has a steampunk vibe. So anyway, this is early on. This is when we first meet Sir Ethan Summerlid. Sir Ethan Summerlid is a buccaneer. He is of low birth, who's actually risen all the way up to pi, uh, captain. And he's working for the queen, and he is in space battle. <clears throat> right. So for those of you just listening, we are visiting with Johnny Worthen, author of Of Kings, Queens, and Colonies, and many other multi-genre works. So he's going to read us a passage. I love this one. Do you want me to put the map up so we don't have to hold the book sure. up? Sure. Yeah. Because I love this map. So you can see this. So if you look at the map, uh, you'll see these two. You'll see it around the sun. By the way, I love this map. I had this commission. You'll see the two arrows around the left and right. That's the eastern and the western trade corridor. And those strange-looking hooks are the shape of the ships. Okay. So this is in the eastern trade corridor, the year 937, New Era, and we are aboard the Mary. <clears throat> that was from the Astro, sir. Rail grape shot. Get me a damage report, barked Sir Ethan Summerland, and keep me and keep honor, Mr. Kyle. Aye, sir. Sir Ethan Summerland, Commodore and Knight, stared through the periscope at the fleeing ships. Where's my firing, so- firing solution, Mr. Paul? Nearly done, sir. Sir Ethan glanced above him at the strapped weapons officer and listened to the clicks of mechanical computing devices. Mr. Paul swore under his breath and reset the machine for another try. As his hands fell to the keys, his pencil floated serenely out of his hand, jerking back to its board only when it reached the end of its tether. The zero-grav battle bridge at the center of the Mary was spartan and close-quartered. It had room for just seven officers and the commander. 
They were arrayed at odd angles to take advantage of communication links and optics tunneling through the ship. Clattering teletypes and computer mechanics competed with the sound of the plasma pulse engines at the end of the ship. Damn, said the weapons officer. Mr. Paul, the Astro is firing upon us. Let us return the favor? Aye, sir. Another reset of the machine and the weapons officer went back to work. Ethan knew the strain the man was under, knew the complicated maths needed to send rail shot across thousands of kilometers of space into an enemy ship from the gun platform. He watched Mr. Paul work the sum's longhand, tracing vectors with rulers and scribbling lines of calculus with a pencil stub, at any moment expecting to have to start again for movement or storm. The command staff stayed as quietly as they, stayed as quiet as they could, letting him work, waiting for the word, excited for the hunt. No one on the bridge could feel otherwise, though they'd taken a volley from the Haraxian convoy. Sir Ethan's exhilaration was contagious. He wore his thoughts openly, his emotions on his sleeves. He was quick to smile, anxious to share his pleasure, and likable to a fault. He knew this because he'd been told so by many at court. Some told him this in praise, in an effort to garner patronage, because he was high in the Queen's esteem. Others had told him the same thing in warning, for the same reason. He was a favorite. Damage report, Sir Ethan, said Mr. Andrews. Go ahead. Three-meter ablative armor scar in sixth quadrant, said the damage officer. Latitude, 18. Ethan visualized the place on the ship where they'd been struck. By necessities, the ships flew between Coronom planets. The ships that flew between Coronom's planets had the same general design. The main hull, which carried crew and cargo, was a spinning cone pivoted, pointed ever at the sun. The hull was stacked with reflective ablative armor, composite layers of radiation shielding, gold, steel, lead, crystal fiber, and carbon thread, at least 10 meters thick. Warships often had more than this, often much more. But this was the minimum to get men around the angry, spitting star with any degree of safety. Like hellfire hurricanes coronam on bread on the oceans of the worlds, the star itself shot out unexpected flares of radiation and debris, cinder light and gravity quakes that could tear even 20 meters of armor and turn dense mass to molten slag in the flash of a flare. Mm, the flash of a flare. Do you, see this, do you see this being a TV series? Oh, man, I dream. I dream of that. I would love. It. I was saying, you got the the costumes. You just you just go to you, just, you got them in the closet. You got these. I'd kill for this. I would this, absolutely yeah. kill for this. This would be a high a high dollar production. I I don't know. I, you see, a lot of it you just, you just. I mean, it's it's a lot of it's yeah. uh, boudoir. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> pretty awesome. I would I I would I would I I would eat glass to get this to even even considered. I, I must say. I think I think it would be it would be great. I, I honestly think it. And the thing is, is I compare it to Game of Thrones, but with an ending, you know. <laughs> because you know, that doesn't, like, doesn't make us, yeah, yeah. Right. With you know, exactly. I mean, but the book, right. the series, so the actual end, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that even from the beginning? And we we'll t- talk about some of the writing craft. Is I believe you have to know the ending of the story before you begin. Otherwise, you're you're lost in the weeds. Even if you don't get to that ending, you get to another ending. Having an ending keeps you moving. Are you a planner or a pantser? I'm on the spectrum, but I have to have an ending. I'm more of a planner. Yeah. Um, I try to get myself, I need, need some kind of, I kind of know where I'm going, what I have to fill in as I go because I have plot points and everything. But uh, the actual who will be there to blocking, at some point I just allow myself to, to explore. But I knew where the story was going. I knew how it had to end. I knew the moment. I knew who it would be. I honestly think the uh, climactic chapter of this series is one of the best things I've ever written in my life, and I'm still so proud of it. Um, it's beautiful. I just... So, so you did that workshop called the muddled middle. What is your greatest challenge as a writer? Um, I, the I, muddled know, middle. I, I'm guessing, I'm guessing it's keeping track of, you know, so many characters. And actually, once you get going, it's not bad because each of the planets has its own character list. Right. Right. So, um, like, you know, we have in Scari's world, we have Hyrax and sometimes they mix, mix around. We have like, uh, we have a, a Tarquin. Which is a great foil. He's a nasty bit of business. He's the he's a perjurer, read inquisitor, who travels around and he plays a major role in the story. Um, but no, so generally with Coronam, what allowed me to get through the muddle middle so much is because I had such a broad table. Is I would get to a point on Inscari's story, and I you know I knew how to leave, and then I could just go, who needs a little love? Ah, we'll go to Hyrax and talk about 
how the king is working with his plan to destroy Inscari. Ah, now we got to go to Prophet because I, uh, to the Prophet because we need to see that the villains think they're the good guys. And then I spend that moment, and then I and then the characters just just bleed into itself. And so generally, each chapter is just a short little moment with a lot of flashbacks and connections because we're not going to get back to Solangen for a while, right? We're not going to get back to this planet for a while. So it's important to get as much in there as possible so you at least have the denouement to see which direction they're going on. I focus on only the um, I focus on moments, on key moments, what led to it and where it could go. But that, that being said. Each each project is so different, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm now writing uh, the sixth comedy mystery uh, series, uh, Tony Flanner. I've just got a new publisher for this series, which is like, I'm so happy. Congratulations. So, uh, thank you. And um, and that one's struggling because I keep getting distracted. And that's one of them when I think is going to have a lot of editing. When I was early in my career, I could write an entire rough draft, first draft. And it was basically pretty solid, I thought. But as I'm writing, as I'm getting more and more into this, I find myself second-guessing myself more. And editing a little bit more and afraid of repeating myself. I keep doing it. It's easy to find yourself in the same scene that you've already written. Yeah. So the muddled middle is still the trickiest to me is uh, keeping the enthusiasm. When you start a book, you're in the honeymoon, right? Mm-hmm. All is beautiful and lovely. You can do no fun. I think it's fun. You leave the cap off the, off the toothpaste. <laughs> and that's, then it settles in and then, then it's a whole new, whole new world. And then suddenly your characters are arguing with you and they don't want to go and you know you want. And and I write mysteries and generally I know what the mystery is, but I can't reveal it yet. So it's like inching, 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 inching. And then three quarters of the way through, it says, okay, let it go. And then it's fun to write again. Then I don't have to hold anything back. So I'm trying to get to a position where I can not hold anything back a little sooner. But I don't know. Each each project is is different. Book two was hard for me in this particular series because there was a lot I had to hold back on. Because a whole, because a whole book two and a trilogy is it a trilogy? Yeah, the whole book two is your middle. Is the middle middle? So yeah, and I knew I knew what I had to get to, and I knew. And luckily, book one, I I had the model of actual events to 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 help echo. Uh, book two, I had a I had a few of those as well. So what actually happened? What did people actually do? And then, but I, then I had then I folded in a revolution. Uh, there's that, one of my favorite planets in this uh, system is Mirah. And Mirah was one of the civilized planets, but it's become the slave planet. Mm-hmm. It's one of those planets that arrived late, but got the good word, but was not strong enough militarily to overcome the rest of them. So for some reason, even though they're from the same planet, the same heritage, somehow they're lower life forms and can be used in chattel slavery. So um, echoing heroes of mine, we have a character named Andre Bruin. Because John Brown was taken, and so we have a revolute, we have a slave slave revolt happening there, and that one was just a, to me a whole different novel happening in the parallel of all the rest of them. You know, so we have the Hyrax and, and the Inscari battles back and forth, and the Prophet finally realizing what's going on. Oh my God, these bees are serious, you know. And then we have popping revolution here and there, and so it, for me it was it, it always had it had a lot of places to go and i did lean um i actually in, in book two I, I brought in another planet there's a planet called Salangin, which is a nasty bit of business yeah. i considered it um the closest parallel would be post-spanish conquest south america oh boy and it was yeah it's not a pretty place and hmm. um and i have uh and in, in the second book i introduced two missionaries who were sent there from uh, the temple to uh, to convert the natives who are savages, and that's the savages. Because okay? wow. you're civilized, you're saved, you're a savage. And these savages are truly savage. And in a way, the whole place, it's kind of an apocalypto. If you saw, if, if you got through um, Mel's movie, there's a lot of echoes of the madness happening there. And to, and this is when we first noticed something really, 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 really strange. And that is, a little spoiler, is that there, okay, each planet's people, because of the radiation, have developed certain characteristics if you're on then scary the reason it's a red planet is this is the solar radiation has kind of colored your hair red colored you red you know lavender a little green a little blue from claremont adaptations um, and, people have yes. adapted to their challenges yeah and to gwen and they're kind of yellowish gold so uh as these missionaries are on the are on this planet with these 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 mad savages look they find uh yellow people there they have no business being there and so <sighs> I love that moment. It was All like, right, don't tell don't tell us anymore. 
it's, yeah, so and so that that gives me a whole new avenue. So it's exciting to follow those things. And you know, the panting and the platters, it, it's it's a good thing to to bring up because although I had the overall arc of where the story was going, what who the major pieces were, by having an outlet for some of these, can we call them subplots? Subplots, which actually will inform the main plot as they must. Yeah, I had a lot of leeway on. And if you can write your story in one sitting, you don't need a you don't need an outline. You really don't. <laughs> but my God, if this is going to take you a couple of years, it's a good idea to take some notes as you go. So these other planets and these other stories and these vignettes really were just cathartic because I could just express myself and let the muse come out on the and get that pantsing rush, which, right. which I tell my students is a bad thing, but it's not. <laughs> It's lovely. <laughs> Listen, Gromit, it's lovely. Oh man, I do. I, I, I just, I'm so excited. I cannot believe it got published. I honestly wrote them all, thinking I will be self-publishing this at best. And um, I, I, I think it's a complicated piece, though. I, I, I'm getting a little bit. Well, getting it published is, of course, outstanding. My, I've had some good. I hit bestseller thanks to promotion. Uh, you seem to like it, which is, which makes me very happy. <laughs> but it, you know, considering what most people. But most direction of, of genre fiction goes, this isn't exactly a space opera. Right. Um, this is, you know, you're reading half history, mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. so it's because I, you were I, so because you were such a lazy man in writing it. Not because I'm lazy man. I've got too much in there. So you know, um, you know, we're talking now about a possibility of book four. I've always thought there was a second trilogy that happened about a thousand or two thousand years after this one. That could happen. Okay. Um, All right. So I don't know. Uh, I, I hope if we. I hope I have the patience to to hope, hope I find my audience, a large audience that continues to do it because the book is luckily because it's not so contemporary. It yeah. should last. It should have some staying power in the canon. If you know, you can read this and you could have read this last year. You could have read, read this next year. And then, it's al you know. it's almost historical fictiony. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Add that to my list of. Genres. I mean, yeah, put, put that on your list of multi-genre works. So, completely different, completely different topic. Excellent. Um, others than aside from you're deciding that you are going to be the tie-dye guy, uh, mm -hmm. what's the most controversial thing you've ever done? Well, I led a writing organization. The League of Utah Writers is the state's oldest and largest writing group. Uh, founded in 1935, uh, it's still alive. It's uh, you know, like any organization, it has its its, its peaks and troughs. I joined that and um, kind of really did a lot did a lot of good with it. I had turned it around. Mm -hmm. It was it was financial difficulty now. Now it's running strong, but it's uh, it's an organization and uh, hurting cats is tricky. I I, I pushed. A, I I might have made a few people angry. I still don't know why, but. That, that, I did some controversial things, Mo moving our conference to a single place. I got some heat for that. No, I don't, I'm not going to say too much. What are the controversial stuff? I about them? Oh, I once said Superman is the worst character ever invented oh. uh, at a comic con. <laughs> oh. Kind of fun. Yeah. oh my! Well, no, think about it. Think about this character. So uh, I'm, I, I'm 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 on a panel at a, at a comic con. It's called Comic Con at the time. Uh, that's called Fenix. And so we're talking about good characters and good characters. I, I, I mentioned the worst character in all of American culture has got to be Superman. He's, he's <laughs> bad. And it's because he has no faults. Characters are interesting for their faults, not their strengths. And maybe in 1939, that was the thinking was different, but I find nothing interesting. There's a reason why Batman is the guy, because the Batman is nothing but faults, right? Mm -hmm. Super, now, so I'm, I'm, I say this, and... Uh, in the back, you know, in the middle of the place, the man stood up and said, I, I, I disagree, he said. He said, well, okay, tell me it's Superman's fault. And he quoted scripture and verse <laughs> in issue number 763 on page 25, panel 3. It says specifically, and I quote, I love people too much. <laughs> I don't think that proved, disproved my point. Huge gasp. Yeah. Huge gasp in the audience. I am, but I'm thinking, okay, it's that's like when you're at a job interview and they ask you, what are your faults? Yeah. Oh, I'm too much of a perfectionist. <laughs> I care too much about my job. No, that's not a fault. That's that's praise. And what's that called? Uh, 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 false modesty false, or something. False modesty, yeah. 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 So anyway, right. I, I thought that. So I got heat for that for a while. <laughs> you know, but I don't know. The DC right. people came out. Here's a lightning round for you. Okay. Ready? Chocolate or pistachio? Mm. 
Uh, um, Lightning round. Talk uh, about pistachio. Uh, uh, pistachio, if I can get it. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I shouldn't say right answer or wrong answer because that's your answer. But okay. okay. Um, fall or spring? Fall. Star Trek or Star Wars? Trek. Uh, dogs or llamas? Hmm. Dogs. <laughs> I mean, do- dogs are low on the list, but man, it's hard to train a llama to to do it on the paper. It just is. Bagel, come here. You you talked about about bagels earlier. Come here, come here. You know, when I lived in Oregon, we had llamas. Come here. <laughs> I want to introduce you to what those of you at home. There's a llama you. on Laurel's. Oh, it's a dog. <laughs> want to introduce you to Bagel. This is Bagel, bagel. my uh, my grand dog. Oh wow. And he's he's a wonderful a wonderful pup. So when you were talking about bagels earlier, he heard you and he came on. Oh, did he? He Bagel. wanted he wanted to be part of the oh, very part of the podcast. How do you get the name? Uh you know he followed my son home from a burrito shop in Texas. So and he looked at him and he said he looks like a bagel. So that's uh, don't ask me. We have we have a creative younger son. Both our sons are creative. <laughs> Well, I'm just saying, if I if I served a bagel that was hairy and black, I wouldn't have had as much success. You you would have been out of business. <laughs> Burned hairy bagels are not considered hairy All right, so tell me a little bit about this dark fiction press that you do editing yeah. for. Well, because I I personally, when I write short, my shorts go dark and weird and bizarre. Don't they though? Yeah. Um, it was actually my debut. I mean, I got started like, you know, 11 years ago, 2013. My first book was, it might have been 2012, 2013, was Beatrice. And that's where I made the acquaintance of a wonderful human being named Kate Jones. If you're listening, Kate, hi. Uh, she had a small press called Omnium Gatherer. Um, I think it might be in, in it's, it might be closing now, moving into other directions film. So I'm not sure if it's still publishing. Um, I'm still very, want to be very much part of it. But anyway, so at the time I was just an author and uh, I made, and she was my, she was my first. And, uh, my God, was she understanding it's, if you, you know, because I, I was, I was a terrible, terrible author. You know, I, I fought for it. She had every edit came back and went, no, 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 it's perfect. Yeah, no, no, no. And, um, she said she was going to fire me at one point. Then we lit upon the idea. And back in the day it was before zoom, but we did a Skype call and we actually read the entire book t- t- together. Wow. And, uh, she'd read a chapter and I'd read a chapter and we would, um, edit as we went. And, at once it's face to face, it's clear. That's one of the things you have to remember. And that it's, um, particularly, um, when something's, a, when, when you're sensitive about a subject like your first book. Yeah. Is texts and emails will never, ever replace a face to face, even this way. Right. Even over a computer, because you, you can't tell how it's being said. It's everything's an attack. It's not, it's just a list. And so it takes a long time to get over that. But she worked with me a lot and she, um, we, we had to, uh, she challenged me to find other books written in the present tense mm-hmm. and, uh, that, mm-hmm. uh, because I changed it to the present tense and um, uh, we did. That's a, and that's a challenge. Yeah. No. And uh, we worked through it and uh, she was right about, about everything. And she let me even have a, leave a few things because they weren't worth a fight. Nice. The words, suddenly she was trying to break oh. out. <laughs> she got about 80% of them out. And um, now when I read the book, I just hear her say, you don't need this suddenly. And I said, I'll leave it. We got to get a couple. There are so many words that you don't need in your book. And and I'm in a critique group right now and they find things that I, I swear I don't do anymore, but I, yeah. but I do. And that's good to do. So this leads me to, you've, you've done a shout out to, to her. And do you have any other shout outs to people you'd like to acknowledge and advice to new authors, new writers? Well, there's so many people who've, uh, um, Jonathan Mayberry um, is, helped me in some strange connected ways and he's just one of the absolute gentlemen of the industry and if you ever have an opportunity to meet the wonderful jonathan mayberry who's a prolific writer prolific conference goer okay. make friends with him he is the epitome of what a noble gentleman writer needs to be um one of the things that uh he exemplifies he personifies he lives is an early axiom that i i learned is that if you want to Earn, if you want to reach your goal, help other people achieve theirs. And he quotes um, his mentor, Ray Bradbury, don't be a jackass. That's the rule of survival. And it's, it goes beyond that. So thanks very much to him and his career. Um, a couple of people don't, aren't in the industry anymore, like uh, Chris Loke gave me a, had, had a lot of faith in me when I needed it, when I got started. My current publisher, um, 
at Flame Tree, uh, Flame Dar- uh, Don Daria, outstanding people. The League of Utah Writers is still very much my, my, my home. I don't know, just everybody that keeps writing and my students. I love my students. I teach you, I teach creative writing at the University of Utah and it reminds me why I like doing this. If I were teaching this and I was giving grades, it'd be shit. But, uh, <laughs> no, they're all there for learning and, um, that's great. So, yeah. so advice uh, to advice to authors, advice to writers? advice to authors. Uh, keep keep trying and um, uh, write what you want to write. You, I, Regardless I, of the yeah, genre, write. Yeah, one of my earlier mantras, if, again, besides doing uh, helping others, was I write what I like to read. Mm-hmm. That guarantees me at least one fan. Um, <laughs> And and the books that I've really just let go when I wrote because of me, they've been my most successful. Yeah. The books that I wrote because I thought they might sell are sitting on that shelf, not published. So th- I think there's something to that. Write what you love, keep trying, um, and you got to like the process. If you don't like writing, you just like having written. That's that's a thing. But mm-hmm. you know, one one of those authors, I, I don't know whether it was Samuel Clemens or whomever said, if you can make yourself laugh or cry while mm. you're writing, you'll make your audience, you know, your readers exactly. laugh or cry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, tomorrow, I, I get to answer this question for 35, 40 minutes tomorrow. I'm, I'm on my way to a conference to keynote. And uh, I, I've been thinking again how I, um, how I got here. And uh, a lot of the things that I had, I, I looked at my earliest notes, my earliest talks I gave. They're still very, very, very valid. Nothing has changed on this, except for the the, the industry's changed a lot. Yeah. Um, but there's nothing you can do about that. Right. Right. So the only power you have as a writer is writing, and with that, and you can equate that into a very simple axiom: write another book. Yeah. Hey, you know what? This book I finished. We're ready to write another book. It's Wednesday. Write another book. This book didn't sell. Write another book. This book got a shitty review. Write another book. This is going gangbusters. What do I do? Write another book. I just got in a car crash. I feel icky. What do I do? Write another book. It's the only power you have, and it is the cause and the cure of your madness. Love it. Improve your art. because um, and, and now on the horizon, we have this chat AI that's coming now where we're going to be superfluous yet again. No. Uh, no, I refuse to believe uh, that. It's, it's going to hurt. People are going to lose jobs because of this. BuzzFeed already announced they're laying off people. But uh, let's not even get into that because yeah, no, I it's refuse. a terrifying time. But but um, you know, fiction is where you tell truth through lies. It's I I don't I I I'm, if you're not here, you don't know what I'm talking about. But it it is there is an absolute transcendent spiritual quality about getting into the getting into the focus and getting it all done. I highly uh, shout out to um, Elizabeth Elizabeth Gilbert, Big Magic. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a great book. Yeah, yeah great oh, book. Yeah, um, yeah. and uh, thank you, and thank all the conferences. We talked about uh, Colorado mm-hmm. Gold, uh, mm-hmm. um, Pikes Peaks, another great one up where near near you, I think, mm-hmm. um, south of yeah. south of Denver, but north of you. Mm-hmm. We're Colorado south Springs. of Denver, so yeah, uh, Pikes Peak is in Colorado Springs. That's like yeah. a couple hour drive. Have you ever been there? East to here. No, I, no, it's on my list. It's on my list of things to do. There are so many great conferences out there. I would let me put a plug for this one. Okay, their theme this year is hippies. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to have to find the tie dye then, or or make my own, to, or make. I my would own. love to see you. We'll, we'll hang out, we'll have drinks. Um, yeah, go so, to conferences, make friends. So what? It what? What's next for you? What's coming out next? Well, the next book I have a I have three short stories in a row coming out this year um i also have i just received the press announcement for the uh, the new publisher for my tony flanner series and in that contract there is book six which is the first time i've ever sold a book before it was written congratulations that is which fabulous is, which is my next major thing and after that uh, my publisher and i are going to talk about where to go with kings queens and colonies i have a horror that i wrote during the pandemic i tried to write a comedy it didn't work out so I ended up writing a horror. So write it and, again. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. it ended up being a horror. I love that. Yeah, I, I'd love to talk to you about horror on oh, why it is. Yeah, like I mean, that. dark, dark horror is. I mean, dark comedy is wonderful. I love it. Love it. I love it. We'll do it. We'll do another. We'll do another episode I, in, the, I was trying, in the future. So where I'm, can where can people find you and your work? I'm at johnnyworthen.com. J o h n n y w o r t h e n dot com. Johnnyworthen.com. That's it. Everything's basically there. Be gentle to the web design. I do it myself. 
back in the day where he had an HTML editor. I did all right. It's mm-hmm. I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm speaking. I'll be at Pikes Peak. Um, I'll be at Fanex in Salt Lake City, uh, St. George this weekend. Uh, Life, the Universe, and Everything in Provo next month. Uh, my book, my class, Creative Writing Two at the University of Utah is being taught remotely this year. So there might still be room if anybody wants to just take a creative writing class from me. Oh, it says two, but you can just have to you don't have to take taking the first one. And that's at Lifelong Learning at the University of Utah. Again, a link at johnnyworthen.com. And um, thank you for your time. This I, it sounds like we're winding up. We're winding up. Thank you, Johnny. Wow, we're great. Woo! And, yeah, yes. And you're going to send me, send me a couple of pictures. Send me some of your best in your tie dye pictures. I've got a great one of you that I actually sent to Colorado Authors League of you pointing yeah. at one of your, your presentations at the Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers Conference in your. I used that. I found that picture. I used that. Oh, That's good. Important. You did that? I did that. Love hearts to you. You That's as well. Amazing. And we're, we'll have, we'll, we're going to do this again. So until then, you stay well. And keep writing those next millions of books. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Read on, write on. Right, right on. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And you will find links and photos from this episode on my website at leadvillelaurel.com. See you next time. Bye, Johnny. Bye-bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com, where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com.